I don't think that you have enough faith that we can uh, summarize Fantastic Four. <laughs> I think we can do it. Well, we should get started on the podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hey, did you like our new theme music? Yeah, I think it's great. We managed to find a place that would sell us some cheap theme music. We like it. We hope you like it. Yes, at least I hope we like it. We're still making the decision as we record this right now. Yes, we're pretending we know what our theme music is <laughs> as we're recording this. In fact, we have not made a final decision as to what it will be. Today, we are going to be reviewing the Marvel superhero comics that came out with a cover date of December of 1962. That includes an issue of Fantastic Four, Journey into Mystery, Tales to Astonish, and... Strange Tales. Strange Tales. There we go. So, Fantastic Four number nine on the cover. The Fantastic Four is being evicted from the Baxter building. And the Baxter building in the cover actually has boarded up windows in the top five floors that the Fantastic Four used to inhabit. That doesn't happen in the book. (laughs) It literally has broken windows and boards over some of them, and it just looks like it's about to be demolished. In an eviction, often the tenant will trash the place, and that seems to be what the Fantastic Four then did. (laughs) The Fantastic Four are like, hey man, let's have a blowout party on our last night in the Baxter building, and then they managed to smash all the windows. What are they going to do, evict us? (laughs) Exactly. So, So Submariner is standing in the foreground with his arms folded in front of his chest, thinking to himself, little do they dream that they will soon be at the mercy of the Submariner. And we've got a little placard that says, what happens to comics magazine heroes when they can't pay their bills and have no place to turn? Don't miss the newest and most original tale of all, the end of the Fantastic Four. And then there's a big billboard that's in front of the Baxter building that says Fantastic Four evicted from building five tower floors for rent. And Thing is saying, heroes one minute, bums the next. How did it happen to us? As they're yes. being heckled. And the Summerner now wearing green shorts. So now yes. he's come to be the Summerner we know and love. So let's just go ahead and say, this is the silliest ever issue of the Fantastic Four. And maybe craziest. Silliest and craziest <laughs> ever issue of the Fantastic Four. And yet, the whole conceit of this issue is this is going to be more down to earth than any superhero comic you've ever read. Yeah. So it's going to be the most realistic, the most grounded in reality. And there's one aspect to which, yes, that's actually very legitimately true, but there are other aspects of this where that is absolutely not true. So um, I know that you, Matt, were saying that you were unsure whether we could summarize this well enough just because it's such a wackadoodle issue. Now, I was trying to write a summary of this issue and I'm going, this is like a 20 point summary because so much <laughs> happens and any two pages of this comic are so insane. Can I give it a try? Since I seem to have a little more probably misplaced confidence in myself on this one. (laughs) Yeah, try to summarize it. All right, so we start off with Submariner in his pressurized air undersea lair here. I think they made it clear in issue six that there is no water in his lair, that his lair is a bubble of air underneath the ocean. And there's a little picture, a little vignette photo of Susan Storm in the foreground. He is watching a news broadcast where the news broadcaster is 
Richard Nixon. I mean, that's there's no way that's not Richard Nixon. But anyway, he learns that the Fantastic Four is going bankrupt. He's thinking of a scheme to make this work for him. Turns out that Mr. Fantastic, despite being the scientific genius that he is, is not a financial genius. And he invested all of the money from his patents and inventions in some stocks that took a dive. And so now they are broke and they need to sell off everything, including their building. They had owned the Baxter building until now. Sell off everything, including their building and all their equipment and all his inventions and all of this kind of stuff. And then because they won't have a headquarters or equipment anymore, they are going to have to break up. So they have some scenes here of repo men trying to take apart the pogo plane and all sorts of stuff. The thing is just about ready to be like, you know what? Fine. Screw this. I'm out. I'm going to go and hang out with Alicia. But Alicia, of course, course, sees him as a great hero, and he is inspired by this and heads back to rejoin the Fantastic Four for whatever might be coming their way. So at this point, they then get a letter that says, hey, there is a movie studio, SM Studios, I believe. Yes, SM Studios. SM for Submariner, of course. Uh, we will learn. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Should I go back and... Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> then they're like, oh, great. Somebody wants to pay us a million dollars to be in a movie. And they're like, oh, this is fantastic. This will solve our problems. But for the moment, we're still broke. So the only way to get from New York to LA is to hitchhike. And so that's what they do. They hitchhike across the country. <laughs> And then they arrive at SM Studios. They see caricatures of all sorts of famous movie stars in here. Alfred Hitchcock. I think that's Charles Bronson there. We've that got... was what MarvelFandom.com yeah. claimed that's Charles Bronson. I think that may just be supposed to be a, you know, random backstage pirate, pirate extra. But yeah, that's definitely that's <laughs> yeah. definitely James Arness and Bing Crosby. Um, yeah. And well, and then I think that's Jack Benny, who the thing is interacting with. Right, and then I think it's Bob Hope who uh, is with Ben Crosby there, because Crosby and Hope yes. were a comedy duo, right? They have lots of fun with the different caricatures, and then they are ushered into the unimaginably palatious office of the studio head who is going to be doing this movie, and dun-dun-dun, it's the Submariner. Smoking a cigarette in a cigarette holder, by the way, which is uh, of course. You know, just super classy. So he describes how he was able to start this movie studio just by salvaging all of the treasure from beneath the sea and from pirate lairs because Atlanteans have been spying on pirates all these years. He goes ahead and gives the Fantastic Four their money. Johnny spends his on a sports car. We have some various stuff of them enjoying the LA lifestyle. Then time for the filming of the movie begins. Well, I, I think we have to. <laughs> so then <laughs> first we have Johnny out hot riding around Right. Burning the road in front of him to flatten out potholes. Then we have Ben hanging out at Muscle Beach, which was yes. a big thing in the early 60s. This idea of, you know, men were lifting weights and getting it big. And then Ben grabs all the weightlifters on Muscle Beach and throws them in the ocean. Then yes. Sue is on a date with Namor. And it says, a penny for your thoughts, Sue. And she goes, I was thinking about you, Namor. You've been so kind to us, so generous. I was wondering why. I will give you your answer after the picture is finished, Sue. We'll start the filming soon. But this is clearly a romantic candlelit dinner they're having. It yes. is literally candlelit. Yeah, well, I mean, as we've learned since the whole Harvey Weinstein stuff, oftentimes they would invite a starlet to what they thought was a business dinner, and they would get there, True. and it clearly was not a business dinner. So uh, he, he's just the Harvey Weinstein of his day. Yeah. So then it turns out that the Submariner is taking each of the male members of the Fantastic Four one by one individually to go film some big fight scene, and they're just going to be filming this all from 
telescopic lenses on a ship out at sea and somehow get enough shots to be able to actually do this, which the mechanics of that don't make any sense, but blah, blah, blah. We'll Not the way that. I, I have a master's in filmmaking from Columbia University, and I can tell you that is a bad production plan. That is not <laughs> a good way to get good footage. <laughs> yes, but maybe that's just because you went to Columbia University for your film degree. Yeah. I've, if I if I'd been to USC, then I would uh, understand this is actually an excellent plan. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, Mr. Fantastic stretches from the boat directly to the island where he is supposed to fight a mechanical replica of a cyclops, and he gets there, and lo and behold, it is the actual cyclops of Greek legend. However, apparently, this is later retconned to this being essentially one of the mole man's creatures that had been brought up here. But that's yes. retconned many years later. Right now, it is supposed to be the actual cyclops of Greek legend. The whole point here is submarine. Mariner is going to try to get him killed. Then he sees Mr. Fantastic is on the island. The Cyclops is on the island. The Cyclops will never let anyone leave the island. And he's a big, giant, powerful monster who's been alive for at least 3,000 years. So job done. I'll dust my hands off and head on back to go ahead and do the stuff for the rest of the people. But yeah. of course, Mr. Fantastic uses his fantastic brain to lure the Cyclops into a trap. So then we skip to Johnny, who is helicoptered into a jungle in Africa. So we had said that there were no black people for a while in the Marvel Universe. We stand corrected. Here are some black people. Not ideal. <laughs> a rather problematic depiction of black people or introduction of black people in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, so we've got the natives below who are supposed to be actors that Johnny will be pretending to fight. And they don't get any real fight choreography or real direction. It's just like, yeah, go down there and pretend to fight those guys. Okay, sure. Yeah, why not? So he gets down there and it turns turns out that this is a tribe that has some mystic potion that makes them immune to fire. So therefore, he won't have any power over them. Well, they actually capture him until he's able to break out. He then makes a volcano erupt and is able to escape. The lava destroyed their magic potions. They won't dare battle me now. They've lost their immunity to flame. And of course, causes a sea of lava to go and destroy their village and all sorts of other stuff. So no harm, no foul, right? Right. Then <laughs> finally, we see the Submariner taking the thing out to their chute, and there the thing is supposed to be fighting the Submariner. And in that case, it turns out it is a real fight immediately. And Submariner, being on the beach and being in contact with water, is just giving it to Ben Grimm here. He is pile-driving him over and over again until Ben finally figures out if you remove him from the ocean, then he will lose a bunch of his power. So the thing is about to just clobber him and win, when, lo and behold, a thunderstorm comes out of nowhere and a lightning bolt hits the thing, which then, lo and behold, turns him back into Ben Grimm because, yeah, that's how these things work. And at that point, the Submariner is able to give him a haymaker and knock him out because he is now Ben Grimm. Although it says that the Submariner is unaware that he has turned back because of the darkness and the fact that the Submariner was already kind of loopy from all the punches. Yes. So he thinks that he has now defeated Ben Grimm. And then he heads back to find Sue still at the movie studio. And then he tells her at that point, yes, this was all a ruse so I could go ahead and put an end to all your male Fantastic Four partners. And therefore, you would know that I am superior to all of them and you will now be free to marry me. And she is having none of this. She goes all poltergeist well, on him. With She says, you ask me that? Oh, you, you fool. 
Perhaps if you hadn't deceived us, if you had been honest with us, I might have answered you differently. But now I've got to prove you still haven't defeated the Fantastic Four, not while one of us remains to defy you. So she's saying, you know, like, Fair enough. Uh, actually, I might have said yes to this marriage proposal uh, if you hadn't been such a dick about it. Yeah, that's fair to bring up. But then she's pretty good at going ahead and giving him a run for his money here with no, you know, uh, super strength or anything like that, just by being invisible and outsmarting him until he locks her in the room and uses the powers of the electric eel. This is one thing they kept up for a little while early on was that the Submariner had the powers of everything that lives under the sea. So they could just be like, oh, I have... I have electricity because of electric eel. And, and there's some other issue later where he turns himself into a puffer fish. It's, you know, it gets pretty <laughs> silly. But right now he's just using his electric powers. She then rolls the carpet up over him to insulate herself from the electric eel. And then he is now using radar sense from deep sea fish and uh, is able to find her. But right then, the rest of the Fantastic Four barges in. They are all three fighting each other to get the chance to be the one to knock his block off. And then Sue stops them and says, you know what? Yes, he was doing a bad thing, but he was doing it for noble reasons. And besides, we made a contract and we lived up to our part. We cooperated in his movie. Now he must live up to his part, she says. The movie well, wait, will wait, be wait. produced. Yes? First... First, yes. they're all beating up Namor, and the first way she stops him is she says, stay back, all of you, even if you think he is your enemy, it's three against one. Right. You've never ganged up on anyone before. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Have you read any of the previous issues? <laughs> there is now a rule in the Fantastic Four where they can't all attack anybody at the same time, because that's not fair. You've got right. a, a three-on-one fight is just not fair, and that's not sporting. And this is the sporting four. And so they can't possibly all attack the bad guy at one time. That was their original name, right? The Sporting Four? Yes. But then she goes ahead and tries a different tactic after realizing Mm -hmm. that one's fairly ridiculous and says, no, 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 we made a contract with Namor. We lived up to our part. We cooperated in his movie. Now he must live up to his part. And he says, the movie will be produced as promised. You will get your money. And then then he just walks out into sea. Yes. And then it cuts to the debut of the movie as they are all stars on the red carpet now presumably the owner of the movie studio disappeared out to see and was never seen again but somehow that did not impede the release of this movie and were they actually shooting footage i mean this whole (laughs) thing was just a whole ruse to get them to lure them into traps where they could be killed so (laughs) are you saying they were actually shooting with telescopic lenses from the ship or are we to assume that they went and shot a whole film after this just to fulfill the contractual obligations I I don't know. Uh, One way or the other, they're all known movie stars and they have money again. Yay. Everything's fine. Yeah. And we assume, I guess, that they repurchase the Baxter building, although we'll later find out that from now on until 20 years later, they'll just be renting the Baxter building and they'll have to deal with a landlord, which will result in various problems. Yeah. And they they get a fair amount of mileage out of that. So do you think I did a decent job trying to get that? You did. (laughs) This is just the craziest issue. Like the panel of them hitchhiking on the side of the road, all yeah. with their thumbs stick out, is maybe the silliest panel in Fantastic Four history. It is a tremendously I mean, let's just, I mean, let's just, I mean, first of all, <laughs> as we've said before, Kirby is great at throne rooms. He's great at thrones. He's great at throne rooms. The Summoner's TV is just gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. this huge barnacle-shaped thing that somehow he's getting TV service way down 
beneath the surface of uh, the he has ocean. a heck of an antenna. <laughs> he has a heck of an antenna. And this was back in the 60s when this stuff was not in very good shape. Right. When Ben visits Alicia, it occurs to me they never mentioned in the last issue that she is a sculptress, that she was just the daughter of the puppet master and you know she was not making her own living. And even in this one, she has made him a white knight figure. And I'm like, oh, showing she's a sculptress. But even then she says, don't worry, see, here's a puppet doll I made for you. It is a white knight. So she's just sort of following in her father's footsteps making puppets, but she is still not a full-on sculptress yet. So I not realized that was not an aspect of her character that comes mm. in right away. So then Kirby is having a heck of a lot of fun here. He yeah. clearly loved doing these characters and loved being able to have these famous people appear. So I should say this is the first issue with credits. There was one issue last month with credits, an issue of Thor. This is the first issue of Fantastic Four with full credits, script, Stanley, art check, Kirby, inking, Dick Ayers, lettering, art Simek. Of course, later people would say that Jack Kirby should have been getting co-potting credit as well, or some people say solo potting credit as well. But for now, he is getting art credit. Stan Lee is getting script credit. Now, eventually, by the time you get to 1967, Stan is not doing that anymore. Stan and he is giving Stan and Jack credit on the same line and calling them both storytellers and not specifying that he is the writer and Jack is the artist. But that takes a long time. We're going to have four years here of Stan giving himself sole writing credit on this book and Jack just art credit. Although Dicko won't put up that for long. Dicko eventually is like, no, you have to start giving me plotting credit too. Well, he refused to co-plot with stand anymore so he said i'm gonna solo pod and demand solo pod credit and stan just gets script credit <laughs> so i'm part of a facebook group of people who read classic silver and bronze age marvel comics and this is one of those things that can just stir up a fight among these diehard old school marvel fans you know you've got your diehard anti stan lee crowd you've got your diehard pro stan lee crowd you have a lot of people who are in the middle there are all sorts of different issues that come up with this and certain people focus on ones more than others so one is were these artists being paid for the plot assisting that they were doing. Because they were at least assisting in the plotting, if nothing else, right? So at the very minimum, they were doing a co-plotting work. I mean, that's what the Marvel method was. Right. So were they getting paid any more for doing that than their artist page rate? I don't know. That's one. That's something I don't have any information on. Probably not. So there's a question of, are you getting paid for doing the extra work? And are you getting credit for doing the extra work? As you pointed out in the first several issues, it just, you know, would say Stanley and Jack Kirby in a signature on the beginning of each chapter heading. And that now they're actually saying script and art, but that later they will say that the two of them together are the storytellers, uh, a presentation of Stanley and Jack Kirby or something like that. So yeah, there's the question of credit. There's the question of financial remuneration. And these things are all so difficult to tease out years later. An artist might at the time be like, you know what? This is great. I get the freedom to do this stuff without having to worry about the actual scripting of the words, but I get to do what I do best, which is tell a story based on just an idea. And that gives me a lot more freedom. This is great. And then years later, as they've been doing this, they're like, hey, wait a minute. I am not getting any credit or getting paid any extra for this. Yeah, I mean, it felt freeing and empowering at first, but now at this point, I feel like I'm being exploited. And I think there was a lot of that 
that happened over the years that has led to a lot of the disparity in terms of our understanding years later of exactly what was entailed in these various things. Right. Both Steve Dacoa and Jack Kirby eventually went on to get comics so that they got full writing and scripting and art credit on. And they were, to me, different enough from the books they did with Stan to imply that Stan does deserve at least some writing credit on these books because they are quite different from the books that Steve and Jack did without him. But they also show that Steve and Jack had full abilities and talents. And I love some of Steve's solo work. I love some of Jack's solo work. I think that they were both tremendously talented writers, even talented scripters. Um, although nobody claims that they were doing the scripting for these issues, even that's not true. Jack, as his claims accelerated year after year after year in the 80s, he eventually was like, no, 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 I was writing in the dialogue in the margins. And Sam wasn't even doing that. And by that point, severe Jack partisans were giving him credit for that. But I think it's generally considered to be that wasn't true. It's a big mess. There's one thing to draw out the page and then put some notes on each panel. Hey, this character's saying this and this character's saying this. Then to actually say, okay, what are the actual words that are coming out of here? Who's saying this in what order? And, you know, how are we going to fit this meaning that you said there into the word balloons that are needing to be here? And I think that, yes, for the next few years here, certainly I think that Jack and Steve should have been getting more credit on the page than they're getting. Granted, yeah. at DC, they would be getting no credit. But yes. until they start getting specific co-plotting credits later on, or full plotting credits for Steve Ditko on some of this stuff, until they reach that point, then yes, they certainly should have been getting more credit, even though they were still getting more credit here than they would have otherwise. In terms of the financial stake in these things, whether they're getting paid for it, I don't know. I have no right. idea. Right. Well, but, I mean... Um, Yes. I think that everybody, including Stan, was not getting paid enough, you know, obviously, <laughs> in that they were creating one of the greatest billion dollar, multi-billion dollar, hundreds of billions of dollars franchises of the 21st century. And they were doing it for relative peanuts. Both Stan and Jack and Steve were all doing it for relative peanuts at the time and not getting any ownership of the characters. I think there is a false impression people get that Stan owned these characters. He certainly never did. And that these characters eventually all ended up belonging to Walt Disney, of course. Yes. And Stan did end up making millions of dollars in the last couple of decades of his life. Actually made several million dollars, then lost it all, and then made millions of dollars back again. <laughs> yes. Whereas Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko did not, were not able to do that. And that fuels some of the fights about this. One way or the other, the last thing I'm going to say about this is uh, at the end of the last page, uh, it says, but the adventures of the Fantastic Four are not over. Next month, there will be more thrills and surprises with the foursome whose incredible exploits and down-to-earth realism truly make this the world's <laughs> greatest comics magazine. So I think the whole thing is like, hey, these guys lose money in the stock market and they're getting evicted from their building. And hey, they need to hitchhike across the country. It's supposed to be like, wow, these are real life things that real life people have to deal with as opposed to Superman trying to figure out what's going to happen with something else that came from Krypton. But then at the same time, it's just, it's so <laughs> loopy. Here's, here's the actual Cyclops of myth who is hanging out right. on an island. The sheer variety of things that happen in this issue. You know, you've got the African natives who are immune to fire. You've got the Cyclops. You've got the whole idea of I've been stealing treasure from pirates. 
It is just, and the fact that it's all in one issue, eventually this show will change as we get to multi-issue storylines where we're going to be doing, okay, here's part one of this story. It's going to be a little awkward for the show to talk about, you know, can we really talk about this? Because it's just part one of a multi-issue storyline. For now, though, they are really committed to the bit of single-issue storylines, even when there is at least 10 issues worth of story crammed into an issue, as there is here. Since I'm reading this on Marvel Unlimited and you're reading it on Scans of the Originals, I don't know where the How the Human Torch Flies segment was in here originally. Here it's on the last page. Where was it on yours? It is not on the last page. It is in the middle. For, for the most part, I'm going to just be like, hey, there's a whole thing about how he flies or talking about all the stuff he has to do with watching the weather and doing his obstacle course and stuff like that. But this is a discussion that came up once again online uh, with, among me and some other Marvel Comics fans. Somebody brought something up I had never heard before, but does seem to ring true. That Stan Lee had a thing against characters flying without a logical explanation for why they're flying so not superman right Right. like just flying but then but then the hulk starts flying right right (laughs) but remember there was the whole thing about it seems that jack kirby seems to have decided that when he was hit with those cosmic rays up in the space capsule i'm thinking that his idea was okay that gave him the ability to fly I see. Right? Oh, and, okay. Makes perfect sense, though, when you put it right. that way. But then Stan has this prejudice against anyone just being able to fly without having wings or fire which, because heat rises or at least little wings on your ankles or, you know, various stuff like that. So that seemed to shed some light a little bit on that whole Hulk discussion we were having last episode. I guess. Yeah, well, maybe. So here he's going through and explaining how the human torch flies, which seems to back that idea up. That, you know, he's like, well, if we're having this character who's flying, we need to have some explanation for this. I've always thought it was logical enough that human oh, yeah. torch could fly. I mean, you know, you light something on fire in a bonfire and it goes flying up into the sky. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm just saying that actually going through and explaining it a little bit more mechanically here is what I'm talking about. Exactly. Okay. So are we done with Fantastic Four at the moment? Oh, my God. All right. Let's go ahead and move on. <laughs> this I love this issue. I think that this is one of the all-time classic Fantastic Four issues in that it's a great issue to close out 1962, close out the first, well, at this point, I guess the Fantastic Four was 13 months old, but yeah. to close out the first full year of Fantastic Four comics and go out on a high note of just absolutely <laughs> insane, bizarre, plot-packed, romance between Namor and Sue-packed issue. I thought it was great. Yeah, it is a beast. It is <laughs> tremendous. It is mammoth. <laughs> it certainly and is that. It runs such a wide gamut from dealing with bankruptcy and having to hitchhike to cyclopses and, you know, <laughs> hitchhiking across the country in your superhero suits. And it's just absolutely out there. Yes, uh, I love it. Are we going on a journey into mystery next? Yes. Okay, so this is Journey into Mystery, starring the Mighty Thor, where he is prisoner of the Reds. So unfortunately, this is another issue, fighting communists. They have him chained up. Now you may go, how could they chain him up? But he is saying, these chains are electronically treated. I cannot break them. (laughs) So because they are electronic chains, he cannot break them. So we go ahead and start the issue. A lot of these things are similar to hour-long episodic TV of the 60s that sort of get adapted into these things. This was a classic sort of storyline. There was this general fear of defections that 
people in the West would defect to the East, that Americans would defect to the Soviet Union, which happened just a small number of notable times, but it clearly touched this deep nerve in America, this notion of like, why would anybody defect? So this whole story is one of these, why would anybody defect stories? So, and of course it turns out to be mind control. So people are defecting, they know something's weird about it. This is, I think, one of the first times we've seen Don Blake say, I am going to become Thor to solve this problem rather than I am just going to encounter a problem and end up becoming Thor once I find my back up against the wall. So then Don Blake decides he is going to head to DC to volunteer to be bait for these people who are somehow forcing these people to defect. Of course, he does briefly think, if only I could tell Jane that I love her, but I daren't. She might pity a weakling like me. She might never love me, which of course turns out to be completely true. I have never heard the contraction daren't outside of a Marvel (laughs) comic book. Yes. Chris Claremont picked it up eventually. It it appears at least twice during the Chris Claremont, John Byrne run of (laughs) X-Men. Daren't. Darren. So then he goes to DC. He says, I want to set myself up as bait by claiming that I've invented a new weapon in biological warfare. Maybe then I can learn how the Reds are making our scientists defect. And so then he sets up a beautiful fake experiment. And it says, after days of fake experimentation, he lets it be printed in the paper that he is developing a virus for germ warfare. And sure enough, that causes the Reds to send a fake photographer to photograph him, releases some hypnotic gas. Then while he is hypnotized, he goes ahead and writes a defection letter, explains that this is the only reason why anybody would ever say they don't believe in the wonderful ways of the West. And he is writing this letter while hypnotized. He is taken to... Now, they make it pretty clear in this case. This isn't some case of like... Often in these comics, they say like behind the Iron Curtain as a way of not specifying what country it is. But here it's pretty clear he's taken to actually Russia, because you show them flying over the Kremlin. You see the onion domes of St. Basil's Cathedral <laughs> underneath yes. the plane. So yeah, and this is clearly Moscow. They they point out in MarvelFandom.com that five scientists have been captured, but he only encounters four. He only rescues four. Maybe one of them was a genuine defection and is currently enjoying a <laughs> vacation home on the Odessa right now. He then becomes Thor. He fights the commies. I guess they're called the Reds in this issue. So I've had to explain, as I've been reading these to my son, I've had to explain to him that the Reds, the Commies, the Iron Curtain, Russia, and the Soviet Union are all the same thing. And so <laughs> in any given issue, they may they may describe it as any one of those things. So then we have another piece of evidence in our internal debate about are flying people flying all the time? Or if you open up a trapdoor underneath them, will they fall? They open up a trapdoor underneath Thor. He does fall. They then put him in the electronic chains. But of course, then he just becomes Don Blake and slips out of them. Hold hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. You forgot the Sharknado. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) There's an actual Sharknado here. There's an actual Sharknado. So yeah, he is dropped into a shark tank because that's what villains of this sort do. They've got a shark tank. Uh, the sharks do not have freaking laser beams on their heads, though. I will say Unfortunately. that. But then Thor spins his th- hammer around so fast, spinning his hammer rapidly. The mightiest figure on Earth creates a whirlpool. It's working. The sharks are being drawn into it. So yeah, it's I'm calling it a Sharknado. That's where I'm going with it. When Thor is in chains and then he's separated from his hammer... And then that turns him back into Don Blake after a minute. I find it somehow incongruous, even though this is how it's always worked and it somehow seems to make more sense in other situations. It really seems to jump out at me that he then goes from being Thor in his Thor costume to Don Blake in his suit with Fedora. 
yes. in the chains. <laughs> like somehow the suit showed up in between the chains and his body. <laughs> Which, I, you know, as I said, it's just sort of something about that particular recontextualization of it. Just, you know, it's like record scratch. What's going on here? Yes. Okay. What if he had transformed in a place where there was no room for him to suddenly have a hat? One does have to wonder that. <laughs> Also, we did miss something with him using a power of the hammer by just rubbing it to create, I don't know, static electricity or heat or something like that. That hammer has a lot of weird powers at the beginning that sort of calm down over time, I think. Yeah, as with Submariner, gradually the number of powers decrease over time as they realize they can't just make up new stuff to write their way out of stories without harming future stories in the process. And so then Thor destroys the Soviet castle. He becomes Don Blake again, and they have to make their way out across Russia in seemingly a whole epic story we don't get to see. (laughs) Then Soviet dissidents finally help them escape. They just remember that even in a slave nation, the spirit of freedom never dies. And then they sail home. He then gets home and we, Jane continues to be the worst and it's getting worse <laughs> if it is at all possible. He comes home to her and she, while clutching her hands together and looking at the ceiling, says, so Thor freed you all and then destroyed the fortress? Is it any wonder that I'm so in love with him? And he says, I suppose not, Jane. She has never gone so far as to, you know, moon, one might say to Don Blake, how much she's in love with Thor. And then he, while smoking a pipe, says, Jane, my darling, how I long to take you in my arms, to tell you how Thor loves you, but I dare not. Heaven help me, I dare not. And then she's thinking, I know I'll never find Thor, but I'll never stop dreaming and hoping and praying. So (laughs) at this point, she must have some sense that he is in love with her. (laughs) And she is absolutely mooning over Thor, but it's not happening. And so we get to at the end of this issue. This is a, I guess, perfectly serviceable early Thor story. I'm I'm desperate for Loki to return next issue. (laughs) Thor is never in his ideal setting, fighting the communists, fighting the Reds. I long for some actual mythological battle here. But in the meantime, this is a perfectly serviceable storyline, I guess. I would say the... (laughs) The weakest issue of Thor so far. Weaker than his previous issue, Fighting the Communist. In that issue, I thought the executioner was a villain with more personality than any of the villains in this issue. Oh, absolutely. He was eating a giant turkey leg with his combat boots up on the desk. You know, that that's <laughs> that's got some real character to it. That's personality. Now, one thing that they're never clear on in these books is, is Thor bulletproof or not? They always have him somehow deflecting bullets with his hammer or doing whatever he can so that it just doesn't quite come up. They had just avoided the issue of whether or not bullets actually bounce off him for years and years and years, until finally, Jim Owsley, a.k.a. Christopher Priest, who was never one for following the rules of what other people are writing, wrote, of all things, it was in an issue of Black Panther, where they finally had Thor get shot in the head and almost die Hmm. in the late 90s. (laughs) And then people are like, what? It's just never come up that Thor is bulletproof. But surely he's bulletproof. Surely you cannot shoot Thor in the head, at which point there will be a big bloody hole in the head and he'll collapse, which is what (laughs) happened in this issue of Black Panther. But in the meantime, it just never came up. So once again, we have them just avoiding that coming up. Okay, so are we ready to move on to, uh, would you rather do Strange Tales next or Tales to Astonish? Let's do Strange Tales. Strange Tales, number 103. There's a little placard that says, Human Torch faces his most fantastic peril when he finds himself... Dot, dot, dot. 
And then in quotes, prisoner of the fifth dimension. So Johnny is in a tank of water. Everything below the waterline is in human form. Everything above the waterline is still flaming. And then the bad guy is saying, more water. Soon the human torch and his flame will be finished forever. And in the background is one of these super futuristic sci-fi cities going on. So Johnny is living in Glenville, which is it seems like a bigger city than we've seen before. It's big enough that there's a deserted alleyway between two tall buildings where he can change to the Human Torch. Then he's in high school. We haven't really made it completely clear he is in high school yet, but he's in high school. And of course, when kids in high school hang around in hallways, we all know the sort of things they talk about, right? <laughs> I mean, what do kids talk about in high school always? In this case, these kids are talking about, they say that Bentley is the best house builder in the state. Yeah, well, then how come three of his homes have sunk into the ground? He was a fool to pick the swamp for his new housing development. So that's what kids are talking about. Johnny hears this and says, I have to investigate why this good house builder keeps having houses sink into the swamp. And then he goes out to the housing development and there is an old man. This is, once again, very Scooby-Doo-esque. There's yes. an old man who is very warning people. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> of course, of course, Scooby-Doo didn't exist yet. So really, Scooby-Doo yes. is ripping off these old Strange Tales stories. <laughs> So the old man keeps warning them that swamp demons are sinking the houses, and they don't believe him. They keep building houses. Johnny is spying on them, trying to figure out if this is the case. And then Johnny is spying late at night, and he sees the old man, and two aliens come up and shoot a beam at the house to sink it. And then Johnny confronts them, and it turns out that the old man is really also a fifth dimensional alien in disguise. He douses Johnny's flame and kidnaps him, brings him to the fifth dimension. We get beautiful fifth dimensional art from Kirby. They decide, ever since we discovered your world coexisting beside ours, we have prepared to conquer it. But till we were ready, we had to prevent your race from stumbling upon the passageway in the swamp that links these two worlds. So then they go ahead and put Johnny in a water tank with breathing apparatus to live out the rest of his days. But it turns out that this is our first glimpse of Johnny romance, that there is a beautiful young <laughs> woman who is living in the fifth dimension who decides to free Johnny with the use of her hypno ring. And she frees Johnny and tells him that they want Johnny to help them lead their revolution against Zemu, the ruler of the fifth dimension. So Johnny does. They fight uh, against them. And there is a beautiful panel of huge, hellaciously threatening tanks that are coming from Zemu. Once again, we have Johnny writing in the sky. He writes in the sky of everybody, arise, arise against tyranny, defeat Zemu. Then he grabs Zemu. He basically sets up the beautiful girl to be in charge. The elders of the rebels are saying, and it does say there will be no invasion of your dimension. And then she says to Johnny, although I would like to visit your world and to visit you. And he says, oh, well, uh, sure, sometime. He's like, hey, uh, hey, baby, this is casual. This is, uh... <laughs> yeah. She says, no. I, I didn't mean for you to get the wrong idea here. <laughs> she says, no, don't go yet. Please stay. There's so much I want to ask you and tell you. I've, I've never known anyone as wonderful as you. And he says, thanks, Valeria. I, I wish I could remain here, but I can't. I must go home to my sister, to my friends. So then he goes back and is sitting in class, of course, wearing a tie like any good high school student would. The teacher says, Johnny Storm, are you paying attention to the lesson? You look as though you're in another world. And he thinks, another world? I guess he'll never know how right he was. So a crazy issue. I think yeah. it is safe to say a fun issue. It's fun to get Johnny actually 
you know, he's been doing very mundane menaces in these last couple issues. This is not mundane. This uh-huh. is absolutely bug nuts crazy. It is, we are going <laughs> to other worlds. Kirby is always at his best when drawing fantastic worlds. And Kirby gets to have a field day on this issue. He's not going to be drawing this book much longer, but he is making hay while the sun shines here. First of all, about Glenville, I have just decided you know, not really knowing much about the town at all, that this is Great Neck, New York, Ah. right? Which is where, which is where Matt and my mom spent much of her youth growing up. I think she was born in Manhattan, but spent much of her youth in Great Neck. So I've just decided this is Great Neck. Why? Because that's where our family has a connection. So, (laughs) (laughs) but then he is late for school in the first page. And so he's like, oh, I'm late for school. I'm going to need to get there on time. So he flies very ostentatiously onto campus as the human torch. And then just thinks to himself, I'll land in the woods back there and no one can see me change back to Johnny Storm. And then I'll come walking out of the woods (laughs) after everyone's been like, hey, look, the human torch landed right over there. Later, when they finally give up on this whole secret identity thing, they will make it clear that everybody knew his identity this entire time. And they just realized that he was trying to keep it quiet. So they just decided to pretend and play along, which uh, that that doesn't take that long. We're going to get to that in a couple (laughs) issues. Yes, thankfully. Another thing is they go really back and forth on the powers of his flame in regard to water. On page three, he is literally burning into swampland, right? He is vaporizing swampland. Swampland is, by definition, watery. Yes. (laughs) And he's just vaporizing it. And yet later it's like, oh, I just hit you with a squirt gun and now you can't flame on. (laughs) How exactly? I guess maybe the thought is that he can't ignite when he's wet, but that if he's already burning super hot, although they're really not consistent with that at all. Well, but to be fair, when it looks like he's being hit with a squirt gun later in the issue, the bad guy is explaining, ah, but this weapon doesn't shoot bullets. It shoots antimatter electrons, which convert ordinary air into a liquid chemical. Observe. And then it looks like he's just putting him out with this gorkin. I can say once again that th- those were called positrons, and that's not <laughs> what they would do. <laughs> you are from the third dimension, Steve, and you do not understand the things that they know in the fifth dimension. This is true. So the other thing I was thinking is, is this before or after Zemu killed all the Thetans in a DC-9 on a volcano with nuclear bombs? Yeah, different Zemu. Yeah, this is this is... <laughs> I don't know. I guess Scientology was out there. So, you know, he could have, uh, Stan or Jack could have been drawing some of these concepts from Scientology. Well, and but, uh, Zemu does end up showing up again at some point years later, and they actually spell his name differently with an X, which actually uh-huh. is how it's spelled in the Scientology stuff. So I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing to play on the whole Scientology thing that was out there, or, you know, just the L. Ron Hubbard science fiction stuff, whether or not you want to think about it as literature or religion, or whether that was just a mistake. Somebody just, you know, said, oh, Zemu, X-E-M-U. Yeah, sure, that's it. Right now, it's not spelled the same way, but in the future, it will be. In my issue, the fifth dimension aliens are colored all over the map. They start off yellow, and then they gradually become other colors, then they become blue, and then they end up green by the end of the issue. I think they look much better green, so I think that that's probably for the best. Yeah, they are consistently sort of mint green. Yeah. Throughout. That's for the best. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're completely changing. Well, you know, fifth fifth dimensional colors are perceived differently by three dimensional beings. Yes. It's just science. It's just science. (laughs) 
Okay, yes, I think we could be done with this issue. It feels like a Fantastic Four issue. It's a fun issue. And there's, thankfully, after that bit at the beginning, less time spent on him just going through ridiculous lengths to preserve his secret identity, which is the zaniest element. And it does have a Scooby-Doo-ish element near the beginning, but that's not what the whole story turns on in this case. No, no, no. It's not a big take-off-the-mask reveal at the end, as we've had in some of these issues. So next, we're going to move on to Tales to Astonish, number 38, with a little banner that says, Surprise follows surprise, as the desperate Ant-Man seems to be, quote, betrayed by the ants. So they're already giving away the the ending of the book here when they say seems to be. Like, they're (laughs) like, well, we can't lie. We can't say that Ant-Man is betrayed by the ants on the cover, because in fact, he's not really being betrayed by the ants. So we've got to say seems to be, and go ahead and reveal the twist. You can lie. Dude, this is fiction. (laughs) Fiction is lying. That's what the whole thing is. In the foreground, we see the Ant-Man stuck on some flypaper, And in the background, we have a, uh, I'm just going to say it, a poorly foreshortened image. I really don't think that uh, Jack Kirby is bringing his A-game in this particular issue, honestly. So you see a really sort of poorly foreshortened image of Egghead, we haven't learned his name yet, but we will in this issue, who is reaching out towards the Ant-Man saying, you're hopelessly stuck to that flypaper, Ant-Man. Your own ants have led you into my trap. For some reason, there's like a torch in the background like it looks like they're in a castle Uh, at the bottom it says starring ant-man the most astonishing hero in comics oh no well i see the actual issue will take place in a museum but generally speaking even though museums have suits of armor they're not actually torchlit you generally don't (laughs) actually want to have a torchlit museum no it's suboptimal art preservation and open torch flame do not really go together very well we should say we didn't mention the credits on thor but thor made it clear that it was plot stanley script larry lieber art check kirby inking dick airs we have all the same credits on this one that one was lettered by Artie simic this one is lettered by johnny d that sounds like a pseudonym and it really someone does. we don't see much of in marvel history after this point no and in fact this is the lettering is and as good as simex so they will be relying on simex more after this so on the first page we have a title the astonishing ant-man betrayed by the ants and you have this really weird and once again kind of poorly executed image of Egghead reaching out towards the Ant-Man who's coming in through the window with his army of ants, and Egghead has some kind of scientific contraption strapped to his chest, and a plain old fireplace bellows aimed towards Ant-Man. But it's a really awkwardly drawn page. It is. Jack had put his real heart and imagination into the Fantastic Four issue and probably the Fifth Dimension City stuff. And at this point, he just needed to get these pages cranked out. That's my take on it. Yeah, I agree. So some crooks are saying it'll take brains to beat the Ant-Man. They then find this guy named Egghead who is caught selling atomic secrets. And when he's confronted, he says... To a genius like me, your insipid patriotic ramblings are laughable. And then he admits that he was selling atomic secrets to the Soviets, but they can't prove it. And so then they fire him, but sell him. We don't want to see you around here again. So then the bad guys hire him to go get Ant-Man. He then reads a book called All About Ants. And (laughs) he decides that he, too, will learn to communicate with ants. And so he contacts the ants. And he says, I am your friend. I have come to free you from the Ant-Man's rule. Help me to capture him, and then you'll be masters, and he the slave. And so then he thinks he has convinced the ants to turn against Ant-Man. He has the ants lay a trap for him, lure him to the museum. 
then he is like, aha, I will go ahead and put you in a flypaper coated box at the museum. You know, we catch up to the first page. He has a bellows and I will blow a bellows at you and that will blow you into a flypaper covered box. And then you have been betrayed by your ants, I have you. But then the Ant-Man says, ha ha ha, I am not sticking to the flypaper. And I've got springs in my boots. Once again, they're spending a lot of time in these Ant-Man comics just coming up with ways for him to get around in increasingly bizarre ways. And this time he's got spring boots to get around and bounce his way out of the box. We've got a cutaway view of the spring mechanism and how it's triggered and how it's attached to his feet. And this is not the first cutaway view we've had in this issue with some of Egghead's equipment earlier. We saw some nice cutaway views as well. So then he's bouncing around on his springy boots. He fights the bad guys. He then decides, surely in the sense of poetic justice, to have the ants get a giant sheet of flypaper and drop it on the head of all the bad guys, going like, you tried to trap me with flypaper, but now I will trap you with flypaper. Oh, you are hoist on your own petard. And so then the cops arrive, arrest all the bad guys, and Ant-Man explains the ants had not led him astray. They, in fact, told him he was walking into a flypaper trap, so he had doused himself in a chemical that would make him immune to flypaper glue. And uh, he greased himself up. He greased (laughs) himself up. They they, they try to explain it like, oh, yes, an oily chemical that does this. It's like you just greased yourself up. (laughs) And then Ant-Man explains to the cops, he says, Egghead had a shrewd plan, but he made one mistake. He misunderstood the psychology of ants. He didn't know that the ants do not consider themselves my helpless slaves. They regard themselves as my friends, my partners in the war against crime. Egghead tried to appeal to their sense of greed, of vanity, but insects have no such emotions. Unfortunately, it is only we humans who possess such primitive traits. Egghead is not arrested, but he slips away and spends his days becoming increasingly unshaven, hanging out in seedy Italian restaurants. And someone (laughs) says, who's he? Says, Deno, but he's been muttering to himself since he came here. Something about ants. Ants? That guy must be loco. Says, that's what I figure. He's probably just some worthless bum without a brain in his head. The end. Uh, now, that was not an Italian restaurant. That was a flop house. I think it actually says a Bowery flop house, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, a dingy Bowery flop house, but it yes. looks like an Italian restaurant because it's got a black plaid tablecloth and then a <laughs> bottle with a candle in it that is okay. dripping wax down the candle. Sure. Um, yeah, okay. That but makes I sense. guess. But I guess you're right. I guess it's just supposed to be a flop house. So this is not the strongest issue. So no, it's not the strongest issue, but this is actually the only long-lasting villain that is introduced in this book. Well, that's not true. Eventually we'll get the Black Knight and we'll get some other things. Pacepot Pete. Oh no, sorry. Pacepot Pete is the other Pacepot one. Pacepot Pete is. We will get a few, but you know, this is like even many years later when they're doing Hank Pym stories and they want to bring back Hank Pym's ultra nemesis, it's... Egghead. Egghead comes back in Adventure Stories years later, long after Hank Pym no longer has his own book, as Hank Pym's ultimate nemesis. So, like it or not, folks, this is the story (laughs) that will establish who Hank Pym's ultimate nemesis is, the Egghead, and he will become a recurring character, although not actually that threatening. Now, you know, we always try to draw connections for folks who are more familiar with the movies. Egghead has appeared in the Ant-Man movies. Oh, did he? I don't remember this at all. I did not notice this at all either. Somebody else had to point this out to me. In the second Ant-Man movie, in Ant-Man and the Wasp, the main villain, I guess, Ghost, right? Yeah. Ghost father's name is the name they eventually give to Egghead as his civilian identity. (laughs) Oh, the... Oh, but yes, uh, Egghead has, against all odds, actually appeared in the Ant-Man and the Wasp movie. Oh my god, I'm looking him up now. Yes, he was... Elias Starr, which is apparently his real name. 
I have seen most of the Marvel Cinematic Universe multiple times. I have only seen that one once. I'm currently re-watching all the MCU movies with my family. And so when we get to that, I will keep an eye out for Egghead. I did not remember him being in there. Yeah, like I said, I did not notice it myself at the time. Somebody else pointed it out to me, and I have verified that it is true, but I haven't gone back and rewatched it since. He was basically sort of shoehorned in there as a very minor element. Yes, well, they I think they felt like they had to include him because, yes. because he is the arch nemesis of Henry Pym, for yes. what it's worth. Yeah, exactly, which, which speaks volumes for some of the problems <laughs> this is going to have going forward. But I love how, whereas when Hank Pym decided to turn himself into an entomologist halfway through his scientific career, he goes and does actual studies on ants and, you know, become gets really serious and scientific about it. Meanwhile, Egghead goes to a book that clearly looks like it was taken from the juvenile section of the <laughs> library. I'm thinking that looks like it's probably geared towards eight-year-olds, something like that, all about ants, even though, you know, I, I'm have spoken poorly of the effort that Jack put into this issue. One thing that I love is on page three, where Egghead is using his ant communication tool. He is clearly like sitting on a little field stool. <laughs> yes. That... <laughs> and then another thing that I do want to mention, though, is when Egghead tries to communicate with the ants, and says, I'm here to free you from Ant-Man's rule and you shall no longer be his slaves. He frames this as I have appealed to their greed and their vanity. On the surface, it seems like you were appealing to their instinct for freedom and dignity. (laughs) Is freedom and dignity equivalent to greed and vanity? And you're, well, I guess he's a bad guy. So maybe it is. Probably means the same thing to him. Yeah, good point. Well, the Cold War politics of all of these issues, even in the ones that don't involve commies, are a little fraught. They can't get Orwellian in terms of (laughs) freedom. Yeah, freedom Uh, of slavery. Yeah, that was it. Yes, freedom (laughs) of slavery. Well, it's funny because like in another 60s parable, when T.H. White added one final book onto the end of The Once and Future King, it's a whole parable about Arthur becoming an animal and going into the animal world where they don't have to deal with our modern day moral ethical dilemmas, except for ants. They are singled out as being the only species that makes war against each other. And so they are the only morally degraded species. So T.H. White would disagree with Ant-Man's <laughs> uh, claim that ants are above such things. But. Well, I'm sure that both T.H. White and Stan Lee and Larry Lieber consulted many, many ant, what would you call it, sociologists? <laughs> Entomologist sociologists to come to their various conclusions, and I'm sure could defend them with relevant citations. Entomosociologists, yes. <laughs> there you go. I like it. That's the new um, Mania Momentus. <laughs> yes. One last thing on the final page of the issue when Ant Man is explaining how he defeated Egghead. The very first panel on page 10, I love the image of Hank Pym taking a bath in the tiny little dish with the oil solution pouring into the dish. It's just He's just in there like he's taking his bath, rub-a-dub in the tub, hey, I have a sponge here. (laughs) You know, once again, just like, yeah, even though it looks like Jack Kirby is putting more of his effort into other stuff, he does have his fun here and there. Jack Kirby always has his fun. Yes. All right, so I think we are done with this, are we not? Yeah, only four issues this week. 
And some of them, this Ant-Man comic was just 10 pages. They're not yeah. holding themselves to doing the same length every week. So this is just a quickie little Ant-Man book. I think this is our final ever month of Marvel Comics with just four books. So we should appreciate it while we can and get ready <laughs> for some much denser weeks after this. Yes, and much sparser recaps. <laughs> yes. We would love to hear from you and love to discuss these comics more in the comments of secretsofstory.com. So now we are, I assume, going to our new outro music. Yes, we will find let's out. hope we have some new outro music and we will play it after this. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, everybody. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.